This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. It's a huge part of the cultural identity of Idaho, for instance, right? We are all the way up here at the very headwaters. It's Idaho that feeds these salmon going out. If you think about Idaho, what do you think about? You think about our rivers, and you think about nature, and you think about this incredibly beautiful, natural environment, right? And and from first appearances, you go out and look at it, and, and it is, until you realize there's something fundamentally broken about what we have here, in that we have this amazing, beautiful, incredible fish that is simply not being sustained. And it's not because of what's happening here, right? Our, our habitat, again, is... Much of it is some of the best of the best that's available to these fish, not just in the Columbia, not just in Idaho, but west-wide, other than Alaska. Like, Idaho is the bullseye for high-integrity habitat for these fish west-wide. And the fact that we risk losing these fish, you know, is really something to ask ourselves about. It's, I mean, I, you know, I think about having my children here in Idaho and like a lot of what we focus on is that we live in this area where we have this amazing run of migratory fish that come all the way from the ocean and the idea of not being able to show them that in the future is it's it's really pausing this episode comes to you from a Chinook salmon the fish the aquatic creature that is born in mountain streams of Idaho migrates to the Pacific Ocean for its adult life then returns to its birth stream to spawn and die to continue the cycle. Chinook salmon of the lower Snake River are on the brink of extinction. Yes, there are numerous variations of salmon up and down the west coast of North America. In this episode, we are talking about the Snake River spring-summer Chinook salmon. Chinook salmon are not on the brink of extinction because this fish is weak and has run the course of its existence. This cluster on the salmon explores this fish why it is on the brink of extinction, and how this can be avoided. Let me paint the land and riverscape of this story. Idaho is in the northwest corner of the United States, with its northern boundary adjacent to Canada. The central Rocky Mountains are in Idaho and are home of incredible rivers where these Chinook salmon begin and end their lives. Chinook salmon are born from eggs in the gravel beds of the rivers. These salmon then travel several hundred miles from Idaho to the Pacific Ocean where they spend their adult life. This means from places like the Middle Fork of the Salmon, or the Neighboring Forks, or so many other mountain streams in Idaho, then down the Salmon or the Clearwater Rivers to the Snake River, and then through or over four lower dams on the Snake River, Lower Granite Dam, Little Goose Dam, Lower Monumental Dam, and Ice Harbor Dam, then down the Columbia and through or over four more dams on the Columbia. As the Columbia River runs west, it also is serving as the border between the states of Oregon and Washington. And finally, the Columbia reaches the Pacific Ocean. Importantly, salmon always go back up the same stream where they hatched out to lay their eggs. So passage up and down the river matters. While this topic is narrow to the Chinook salmon, there are other neighboring aquatic species that have similar life histories and modern struggles. The steelhead, also a fish, is struggling in the same ways as the Chinook and the lamprey eel is also struggling with its existence. This summer, there is massive human attention on the situation of these salmon and this extinction. United States Representative Mike Simpson from Idaho has proposed legislation to remove the four lower dams on the Snake River in Washington state. United States Senator Patty Murray and Governor Jay Inslee of Washington have just released a report about the state of the salmon that suggests the best path forward for avoiding extinction is removing the lower dams on the Snake River, yet this report does not take a stand on the topic. This report is requesting public input on how to move forward. Youth Salmon Protectors is a highly organized group of over 2,000 high school students across the Pacific Northwest that is deeply engaged in the work to prevent this extinction. The Grand Salmon Source to Sea is a group of four women that are at this moment paddling the rivers from the snowy mountains of Idaho all the way to the Pacific Ocean, following the same path of the Chinook Salmon through the eight human-created reservoirs and past the eight river-wide dams that the Chinook must also pass to get to the ocean. This cluster is comprised of two episodes. I do recommend that you listen in order as the information layers on top of the previous episode. There will be a third episode releasing in early July of conversations with youth salmon protectors and the Grand Salmon Source to Sea. 
This will be released as the comment period of the Inslee Murray Report nears its closing. This is the first episode, Salmon One Mountain Origins. For this episode, I spoke with several salmon experts asking for their explanation of what a salmon is. Our first guest is Shannon Wheeler. Shannon is the vice chairman of the Nez Perce Tribe. I spoke with Shannon at the banks of the Clearwater River, just north of Lapway, Idaho. Tatsmewi, good morning. My name is uh, Shannon Wheeler. My name is a place far down from here on Picunin on the Snake River. I'm a Nespers Tribal member. I also serve out on the Nespers Tribal Government, the Nespers Tribal Executive Committee as the Vice Chairman, and have done so over the past year and uh, have been recently re-elected to another three-year term. Uh, Nespers Tribal Executive Committee is the governing body of the tribe. It represents the people, the general membership of, of the Nespers Tribe. So, you know, just a little background on, on who we are as people. Uh, our Nespers people have been uh, dated back at, at, a, at the uh, furthest right now, which is 16,500 years. There's a village site on the Salmon River that's uh, at Cooper's Ferry that, that's been dated 16,500 years. Basically blew the ice bridge uh, theory out, out of the water, uh, basically, and... Uh, so we've known that we've always, our stories, our creation stories of, of when we come to be here, uh, the animals knew that we were coming, the animals had a meeting, uh, they knew that we'd be weak, we'd be feeble, and Salmon was the first uh, animal to step up and say that I would give myself to the people uh, for their survival. And ever since that time, our obligation, that ancient covenant started then for us. And you can call them myths, you can call them legends, you can call them whatever you want, and you can perceive them however you want. But we, us, as a people, that is our beginning. And that is our obligation to the, to the salmon, to the river, and to the, to the nature, and, and how we interact with, with nature, and how we know that we belong. We belong uh, in nature just as a tree belongs, or just as just as a uh, ungulate belongs or a fish belong. We're just a part of that. And we understand that uh, from those teachings that have been passed on from, for thousands of years, from uh, generation to generation. With the salmon, can you, can you describe that fish as you see it and as you understand it? Yeah, natsoch, or salmon, uh, as, as we call it, uh, you know, goes to the mountaintops and into the headwaters and to these most pristine waters that are out here and, and, and spawn. And then they migrate to the ocean and live out there, some for a year, some for two, three, up to seven years. And, and when they return, uh, they return to their place of birth. And so that, that migration is, uh, from the estuary in is, uh, in some cases, you know, 700 miles. And that's all swimming up, up the river against the current. And, and, you know, they, they're, they don't eat on the way up, on the way back. And so they, uh, what's provided within their, within their makeup of, of their body is, is what they survive on. And as they get further up the river, they'll get a little, they'll get darker, they'll get smaller, but then they return to the headwaters to spawn to their place of birth. And, and that's what's truly amazing about them is that they, they, they actually have to go through a gauntlet now, uh, and, and for them to make it their way back and, and for that memory to be, uh, able to get to where they're at, you know, we've been told different things, uh, um, about, about salmon in our lives. You know, the, the line, there's a, there's a thin line on there, just teachings that, you know, that people will tell us. And, and, and I was told by an old fisherman that there's a, on the, on the side of a salmon, there's a real thin paper, thin line of, it's a dark black line. But he'd say, "Well, that's the makeup of their map of of them getting back, and 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 it's just something that when you observe uh, uh, one of your your first salmon, 
that you catch in your life, and, and I did this, uh, just marveled at at its beauty on this on the bank and and near the water, and like just looked at it, and 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 you think, you know, you pray over that, and you give thanks for receiving that. What can you tell me? What can you tell me about what uh, what a salmon is doing in the ocean? Well, you know, uh, a lot of times they're they're foraging around out there too, looking for food and uh, growing and getting stronger. You know, the the amounts of numbers that uh, that make up salmon populations here uh, in the river systems. I don't believe that they was there's enough food for them to survive and grow to the to the sizes that they grow. And and of course, they're going to go just like any other animal would migrate across a, a plain or a tundra in order to follow the food. And, and that's what they do is as they go to where the food's at, they know they've been here for millions of years. And this is something that's that's uh, um, their lessons and that they've learned since their since their birth of who they are. So I imagine that, you know, we don't really know exactly where they go out there and how far out they go, but we do know that they go out there and they return and they return bigger. They return with nutrients that are gathered out there in the ocean. And those nutrients are returned back, uh, to the mountaintops. And, and that's been a, uh, uh, something that has been happening for millions of years that you know just the nutrients that are found in the in the bushes and trees that are that are returned are the nutrients that are coming from the ocean so uh, understanding that you know they're they're more than just the subsistence for us they're they're uh life givers to the to the land itself and when their decaying carcasses are are being distributed and those nutrients are being distributed to the ridge from ridge top to ridge top and and that gyre of nutrients that flows from the ocean to the mountaintops and back to the ocean again is 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 who they are they're they're a keystone species that deliver Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today, we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1600 pounds in the truck and it can pull a trailer with about 6200 pounds of total weight in riverboat terms that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full and yes even your friends or my friends maybe all of them check out your denver area nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. The next expert introduction is of Russ Thurow. Russ is a fish biologist for the United States Forest Service. I spoke with Russ in Salmon, Idaho, near the Limhi River. I'm Russ Thurow. I'm a fisheries research scientist with the U.S. Forest Service Rocky Mountain Research Station. And I am stationed here in Salmon, Idaho, on the banks of the Salmon River, at the foot of the Salmon River Mountains. Can you, can you tell us about the salmon, the Chinook salmon to be specific? To be real general, so salmon are part of the family Salmonidae. That includes salmon, trout, grayling, whitefish. And the word salmo, derived from a Latin word, in my understanding it, it means the leaper, which is a very appropriate description of salmon. Salmon are what we call a keystone species. 
which means they have a disproportionate influence on their environment. Salmon act as predators, they act as prey, they actually alter their environment, which few animals do. I mean, beaver is another example. When salmon excavate their reds or nests to spawn, they're actually removing fine sediment from the substrate. So when you have large numbers of salmon, they actually are cleaning the gravel. They're altering that environment. The other important thing about them being a keystone species is about 95% of their biomass is derived in the ocean. And when they return to spawn and all salmon die after they spawn, all of those nutrients are put back into the ecosystem. And that's really the foundation for the productivity and the functioning of the entire ecosystem. So when you have really robust salmon runs, the productivity is much higher. When it's really reduced like we have now, it has effects. I mean, it's basically a foundation for the productivity of the whole system. And mm-hmm. It's not only the aquatic system, it's also the terrestrial system. Yeah. And there's been a lot of great work done with isotopes that demonstrate those salmon nutrients end up in the ponderosa pine way up the hillside. Yeah. Because the eagles take them there and the wolves and and that's in terms of the aquatic system, the terrestrial system. And it includes insects and birds and mammals and the trees mm-hmm. and the other vegetation. Interesting. That's why we call them a keystone species. They're they're the foundation. So salmon are also anadromous, which essentially means they spawn in fresh water, their progeny rear in fresh water, and then they migrate to the ocean where they mature. And then after they mature in the ocean, they come back to spawn in that freshwater environment. And what's kind of unique about that is they've evolved to take advantage of the much more productive ocean system. And basically, when they're in the ocean, they're feeding almost constantly. So the longer they stay, the larger they become. Can you, can you explain that life cycle? Keep going with that life cycle. You've explained some of the natal to the migration. Can you? So the adults, after they come back, typically go relatively close to where they came out of the gravel as fry. So they'll, they'll select an area, gravel, the female excavator red, males will jockey for position next to her. When we have robust runs, there are multiple males that spawn with each female. So there's this big mixing of of sex products. So that spawning occurs in our fish anywhere from latter part of July into September. The other remarkable thing is those eggs are incubating. I got to ask a question. I'm so curious. So the female carries the eggs, the males carry the sperm. Right. Who's coming back to their natal ground? Are they both coming back to their natal ground or just one of them? So the females typically are the ones that pick the spot and then she excavates and the males will spawn with her but those same males will wander and they will spawn with multiple females if given the chance where the female has high fidelity to that one site and she will stay on that red until she dies and typically that's three to five days after she finishes spawning. I mean the female determines where the eggs are going to go in the gravel. The female's have, have high fidelity to that spot. So then the eggs are, are fertilized, she, re, she buries them, and in a single red, she may have seven different egg pockets. All right, I gotta do another question. Okay. Red, explain that, because sorry. this is not a red salmon, this is no, a thing. No, sorry. Yeah, red, R-E-D-D, which is the term we use for the nest that she builds. So a red is basically the nest that has the eggs the fertilized eggs in them. You, you can identify them because it's a it's an oval, elliptical shape, very large. Most of our reds are somewhere between three to six feet long and, you know, two to four feet wide. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very clearly seen, mm-hmm. um, typically. Okay, so the eggs are, fertilized eggs are in the gravel and, and, uh, and fertilized by the males, and then the female will bury them. And then those eggs will incubate through the winter, which is absolutely remarkable, and then hatch the next spring. And the the fish that hatch initially are called alevins. They actually have a yolk sac attached to them. And when that yolk sac is absorbed, then they'll swim up through the gravel into the stream channel, and that's when they become what we call a fry. And those fry will rear for varying periods of time. And ultimately, as they grow and get larger, they move into faster and, and larger 
um, parts of the stream. And then they become what we call a PAR, P-A-R-R. And then those PAR at some point will migrate to the ocean. And in the, on the journey to the ocean, then they become what we call a smolt. They go through this physiological change that allows them to move from fresh water to salt water. And then the other part of life history, which is a life stage, is what we call the smolt to adult stage, from when the smolts come into the estuary in the ocean and basically feed almost constantly in the ocean and do this amazing migration. And in our case, the fish come out of the mouth of the Columbia and typically turn north, go up along the coast of the U.S., along the coast of Canada, make this arc off the Aleutians, and they may, do, they may travel 4,000 miles in a single year. And some of these fish are doing this multiple years, and then eventually they will start to migrate back to the mouth of the Columbia. One of the really remarkable things about salmon is uh, a bunch of great research has been done, some of it dating back to the to Great Lakes in the 1970s, a guy named Hassler, another one named Horrell, they were able to document that salmon can compass navigate. So these fish can compass navigate across the ocean, and then it's believed when they get near the plume of the Columbia, they will pick up the scent of the Columbia, an organic compound, and they'll follow that scent then all the way back to their natal stream, and let's say hypothetically up to the, to the middle fork. And from the mouth of the Columbia to the top end of some of these middle fork drainages is about 900 miles. So these fish are migrating 900 miles up the Columbia, up the snake, up the salmon, up the middle fork in the top end of these tribs. And they're climbing, as I mentioned, in some cases higher than 6,600 feet. A friend of mine aptly named them mariners and mountaineers. Other people have called them the ultra-marathoners. And the other thing that's special about our central Idaho fish is they're still wild. They're still locally adapted stocks that have not been genetically altered by introduction of hatchery fish. And fish like this are extremely rare. I was part of a big assessment of the Columbia Basin, and we found that only 4% of the historical spring-summer Chinook habitat in the Columbia Basin still supports wild fish like we have in central Idaho. Everywhere else, they've either been extirpated or they've been altered with hatchery fish. So these are truly the best of the best. They're locally adapted. They're still wild. They still have that resiliency that these wild populations have. Uh, you said the biomass that the fish gain in the ocean is 95%? About 95% of their biomass is derived in the ocean. And when you say, you said that they migrate, that the salmon migrate from their natal ground to the ocean, I feel like migrate is, uh, is a term that would suggest a slow movement over 900 miles, but I, but I think it's different. Can you describe what that migration is actually like in historic undammed times? Yeah. So... Pre-dam, a drop of water from where Lower Granite currently sits, near Lewiston, Lower Granite Dam, took two days. Two days from Lower Granite to the mouth of the Columbia. And that's hundreds of miles. It's hundreds of miles. I mean, we're talking at the spring, in spring runoff. You know, and you've got the salmon draining into the snake and the clear water draining it. And, you know, it's a huge river. Yeah, there's a lot of water moving It's a huge river. Now... It averages around 20 days with eight dams. And in severe drought years, like we've had a lot of, it can be as high as 40 days. When the smolts are migrating during those peak flood events, they're actually facing upstream. They're not actively swimming downstream. They're facing upstream and basically riding that, that wave. And there's probably a number of reasons why they face upstream. One would be to escape predators. You know, so if a predator comes at them, they can dash. And, and the timing of that migration is really important because these remarkable fish are going through a physiological change that allows them to go from a freshwater environment to saltwater. And it starts in the estuary, and then eventually they go into the, you know, into the open ocean. And if you took a Chinook par from the Limhi right here in front of us and drove to Astoria, 
and put it in the estuary, it would die instantly. But that physiological transformation allows them to go from fresh water to salt water and survive. And it's remarkable. It involves ATPase and involves enzymes and hormones and all kinds of things. And it's an absolutely remarkable physiological event. And again, they evolved to do this over eons. Hatchery fish have been a thing for a few centuries. Maybe you recall the episodes about the greenback cutthroat trout in Colorado that we published in 2020. Hatcheries are places where humans force fish to spawn new fish. Why? To make more fish, quite simply. These fish are raised up in the hatcheries and stocked in the waters where the humans want the fish. Hatcheries have been present in the life of salmon for many years. When the numbers of salmon were dropping and several salmon species were placed on the endangered species list in the 1990s, hatcheries were considered to be a mitigation for the loss of the wild species of salmon, and more hatchery fish were created and stocked into the rivers. To learn more about hatchery fish, I spoke with evolutionary geneticist Dr. Helen Neville, senior scientist with Trout Unlimited. I sat down with Helen in her home office in Boise, Idaho. My name is Helen Neville. I am the senior scientist for Trout Unlimited. So provide, you know, broad guidance for the organization for our conservation and policy work. Um, I'm actually trained as an evolutionary geneticist, conservation geneticist. My, you know, primary research area is in how to use genetic information to determine conservation status and um, the health and situation and things about ecology, life history and evolution of different trout and salmon. You said you're the lead scientist for TU. That means like of all TU, you're the boss scientist. Yep. Yeah. And you're a doctor of? I'm a doctor of ecology, evolution, and conservation biology. Is there language that you and your peers use to delineate true salmon and hatchery salmon? Um, well, wild salmon is mostly the language that's used to, to denote, you know, salmon that are in nature and, and, and self-sustaining in nature versus hatchery salmon. And so then what is a hatchery salmon? Well, so hatchery salmon, I mean, they're, you know, derived from wild salmon originally in different ways, um, depending on the use of the hatchery. But they, you know, the interesting thing about salmon is they're fairly easy to reproduce. And so they take a, a pregnant female, a gravid female, and you can squeeze her eggs out of her into a bowl or a dish or a bucket and then do the same with the male um, who's ready to reproduce. Squeeze the what's called milt or the sperm out of the male and mix those literally like in a bowl or a bucket and then mix the eggs with the sperm and they'll do their thing and then they can raise these fish in like trays in a hatchery. Um, and then they go through different life stages of, of rearing in the hatchery from a, a tray where they're incubated as you know little eggs and then when they come out as fry, get put in bigger tubs and then they go into these tanks and then ultimately out to a raceway, um, these concrete raceways where the salmon are kept. That, that squeezing of the fish has to be done at the right time. It can't yeah. just be at any, no. okay, it has to be yeah. done at the right time. But the technique, you know, has been around for hundreds of years. I mean, people started doing this in Europe early on and it was done by a lot of enthusiasts who started hatcheries in their ponds in their backyard, right? It, it doesn't take too much. I mean, obviously today there's a lot of modern technology and a lot of temperature monitoring and, and data that are collected. They do genetic brood stock analysis, so pedigree analysis to know who's related to who and select the mates for each hatchery fish um, according to, you know, for the conservation hatcheries, they, they do the mate selection according to a genetic matrix to try and preserve genetic variability. From those early beginnings of hatcheries, I understand that there are a few different types of hatcheries, maybe two different types of hatcheries, creating fish, uh, creating salmon. What are those? What are those two types of hatcheries? Integrated hatcheries and segregated hatcheries. So the segregated hatcheries are brood stocks that are fully hatchery reared and sustained. They are not intended to interact with fish in the wild. They are fully for, for instance, recreational or harvest purposes. So those brood stocks are, you know, the, the hatchery fish come back every year and those fish are pulled in to maintain the brood stock every year. So they, are, you know, can be highly domesticated and um, are, are released in areas to 
purposely try not to interact with wild fish. There's something called integrated hatcheries that are, you know, often the purpose is to, to try and supplement wild populations to increase abundances to provide for harvest and, and fisheries. Some are more conservation oriented to try to, you know, restore conservation populations like the Redfish Lake Hatchery. Um, and those integrated hatcheries will have varying levels of wild fish brought into the broodstock every year. Um, you know, some in some cases, the goal is to be as high as possible on wild fish. But of course, that means you're harvesting wild fish out of wild populations that are already in severe situations and at critical risk of extinction these days. So um, in a lot of cases, they're not able to bring in a lot of wild fish to supplement the broodstock. And even regardless, when you have fish that are raised, even if they bring wild fish in over one season, so sometimes they'll bring them in and try and overwinter them in the hatchery to um, help bolster that one part of the year where there's a lot of mortality. Just doing that has a dramatic impact on the fish and their ability to survive in nature and what we call their fitness, their ability to reproduce and propagate the next generation. Undeniably, you know, a, a local broodstock is not the same as a wild fish. Even if you're pulling fish from that area and putting them back into that area, it's not the same because they've gone through this process in a hatchery of, you know, what I was describing earlier, being reared in little trays and then pens and then the raceways, concrete raceways with food delivered to them and no predators. They just simply, they, they undergo a fair bit of domestication in that environment that causes their fitness to go down in the wild. So there's a lot of changes that can happen from domestication in that hatchery environment very, very quickly. Um, that really changes the fate of these fish in the wild. So that's why there is a huge distinction between the fitness of wild fish, which is, you know, these fish have evolved in these landscapes to deal with their environment. And so they're much more honed to handle their environment than a hatchery fish that's released in the same environment. So the Chinook salmon that, that run up into the mountains of Idaho, historically, there's these bigger numbers that don't happen right now. Today, there's these numbers in the 1500s, maybe some variation in that. That run that's coming up, is that a wild fish? Is that a blend of hatchery and Both. wild? Both. There are wild populations that are managed as wild populations that do not and should not have any hatchery influence. Um, there are other populations that are supplemented by hatchery fish, concert, you know, these these integrated hatcheries where they purposefully release hatchery fish mm -hmm. into the system to try and supplement and increase abundances, for instance. So it's a real mix. And it's an important thing to emphasize in that in our Snake River runs today, you know, sev typically 70 to 80% of the, f the Chinook salmon returning here, say spring, summer Chinook salmon, which is a, an endangered species listed form of Chinook salmon, 70 to 80% of the returns are hatchery fish. That's a really critical thing to understand. So when we say like returns are, you know, up and they're doing a little bit better this year, it's, it's true. Potentially this is a better year than we've seen in, in more recent years, but that's 80, 83%, I think this past year, hatchery fish. And compared to the returns historically in this basin, we are at seriously critical levels. So for the wild fish, the returns right now are much lower than the returns were when the fish were listed under the Endangered Species Act, right? So in, in the early 1990s, all of these stocks began to be listed for a reason, <laughs> because they were you know, at critical uh, situations with the potential of you know, being at risk of extinction. So they were formally listed under the Endangered Species Act, and that act relates only to wild fish. So the recovery of salmon in this basin is fundamentally dependent on the recovery of wild fish. So hatchery runs don't count towards ESA delisting? No. For spring, summer, and technically under the ESA, only wild fish count in the recovery of these fish. And right now we're somewhere, you know, over the last couple of years we've been... 35 to less than 70% of the abundances of wild fish, the numbers that we had when they were listed under the Endangered Species Act, we're still at a portion of those returns from the original listing. So things have not improved.
the wild fish are not doing better. And in fact, they've been declining. And the um, important metrics that, that biologists look at to understand the sustainability of these populations have been below sustainable for a couple decades now. So these fish are a portion of what they were when they were listed, and they are not sustaining themselves over time. They are on a trajectory down unless something truly dramatic changes to, to change that trajectory. Hatchery fish are popular with some salmon advocates and unpopular with others. The reasons vary, but typically come back to something about pure salmon and the deep sustainability of the original wild salmon, or a view that without hatchery fish, modern salmon impacts would be even larger. I asked Vice Chairman Shannon Wheeler his thoughts on the hatchery fish. So, you know, I understand there's a lot of thoughts on, on the value of, of, of hatchery fish and, the, and then the, the challenge of hatchery fish. I'm curious on your thoughts around, around hatchery fish. Well, hatchery fish definitely are a mitigation uh, uh, effort that is put in place for dams. Uh, hatchery fish uh, need to exist now for commercial purposes, for sports purposes. Uh, we have changed. We do uh, have hatcheries. We manage hatcheries. We have our own hatchery, and we're a part of that change. And so as we continue to make those changes, but we still need the survival of a species and its genetics to survive uh, this onslaught that has happened to this point. So hatchery fish, they need to be here too. Uh, being able to survive with the native fish and the native fish being able to to make it through uh, this gauntlet that that they have to face and and I know I know there's there's larger numbers to smolt to adult ratio of return that can be that can be said but compared to what compared to last year the year before compared to the smallest number that's ever returned are compared to the historic number of smolt to adult ratio of return. That's the question. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from, that is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river, you can put your friends in the car with you. You can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022 and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick looking four-door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles, and they even have an all-wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius Podcast sent you. number of salmon in our modern times successfully going from being that par, that small young salmon that travels down all the rivers out to the ocean, continues to decrease. Therefore, the numbers of salmon that return to their mountain natal streams to spawn in the reds, to continue the cycle of the salmon, is also down. And I don't mean down a little. I mean down by over 90% from their historical runs of pre-European American times. Historically, Salmon ran the rivers in enormous numbers. To understand these numbers and to start unwrapping the question of what is creating this extinction, again, I speak with Russ Thoreau, U.S. Forest Service biologist, to learn about the historical salmon runs. So, Russ, can you talk about the historical runs of the Columbia salmon, the Snake River more specifically, and then the value, this narrowed and highly important value of the Snake River Basin salmon runs? Yeah, absolutely. So... The, the best estimates are 10 to 16 million adult salmon returned annually to the Columbia, 2 to 6 million of those into the Snake River. And the Snake River was disproportionately important because although it 
comprises less than 20% of the flow, it supported 55% of the steelhead, 45% of the summer chinook, and almost 40% of the spring chinook. So the habitat in the snake was a, a big driver of salmon abundances in the Columbia. And that habitat that the snake is accessing is this Idaho high country, this all these mountains throughout this whole region. Correct. It's, okay. it's, a lot of it's in Idaho, but it's also in eastern Oregon. You know, the John Day and some of those systems, the Imnaha, um, those were all big parts of the Snake Basin mm-hmm. as well. Okay. Those huge runs brought immense values. The ecological values we talked about, those marine-derived nutrients being the, the cornerstone, basically, of the whole product production and functioning of the ecosystem. To illustrate these immense values, in 1959, I have a copy of the the fishing regulations from 1959. You could fish for salmon for approximately three months. It was a three-month season. First the spring run, then the summer run. And during that three-month period, you could catch and keep two salmon a day. Wow. And And you could fish essentially the entire clear water, entire snake, entire salmon, and all of its tributaries for that three months period. And, you know, these fish have been a really essential component of the economies of all these systems. And as we move into where we are now, the fisheries today are just a minor fraction in terms of area. All the areas you can fish for Chinook now are basically centered close to hatchery-produced fish. There has been no legal wild harvest of Chinook salmon in Idaho since 1978. That's 44 years without a Chinook fishery. Why has there not been fishing since 78? So the reasons for the declines, about 99% decline. And the federal agencies have linked these declines to what they call the four H's. The hatchery, the habitat, the hydro, what's the fourth? Harvest. The harvest, great. Carry on, please. Yeah. So those are the four H's, the degradation of natal habitat, excessive harvest, and a lot of that excessive harvest was early on, starting in about the 1880s. There were almost 30 canneries, I think 29 canneries operating on the Columbia And so they were harvesting massive numbers of fish. In a lot of cases, they harvested more fish than they could process. So there was a lot of waste. And then hatchery programs were started to try to compensate for the the other factors. um, And those have contributed loss of genetic integrity. And then the hydropower system. And if we look specifically at central Idaho and the populations I work with, where we looked at historical red counts, and basically there have been red counts done in the Middle Fork since 1957. So we have over 60 years of consecutive data looking at the trend. And we use those to estimate what the population of Chinook was in the Middle Fork drainage in the 50s into the middle, mid-1960s. And our estimate was the Middle Fork supported 24,000 reds. So in our populations, we have about a one-to-one sex ratio. So if you multiply the number of reds or nests times two, that gives you an approximation of the total number of adults. So that means that the Middle Fork supported in the vicinity of 50,000 adult salmon. So from 1995 through 2021 we've averaged 722 reds in the Middle Fork. So if you multiply it times two, you know, 1,400 fish. In the same location. In the same location. So we've been averaging 3% over that period from 95 to 2021. Last five years, it's been less than 2%. 2019 was less than 1%. And we can ask, so, so how, did, how did this happen? And certainly all four H's contributed to declines across the Columbia Basin. The Middle Fork suggests that three of the four H's don't really apply because we have wild, genetically intact fish. No hatchery fish are stocked in the Middle Fork. As I mentioned, there's been no harvest in Idaho since 1978. And based on tagging of juveniles and then subsequently where they're captured in the ocean, uh, the harvest rates in the ocean on our populations are extremely low in the vicinity of 1%. The non-treaty fishery in the Columbia takes fish, but it's very tightly regulated. So harvest is really off the table as well. And 
the habitat's in designated wilderness. And arguably, the habitat in the Middle Fork is in better condition today than it was in the 50s and 60s, because back then there were still some legacy effects on habitat from historical mining. There was still grazing going on in a lot of systems, and a lot of those things have basically been eliminated. Marsh Creek, for example, had both sheep and cattle grazing, and since these populations were ESA listed in the 1990s, that has been eliminated. So habitat is also off the table. So three of the four H's don't really apply, which leaves the hydro system. And multiple entities over the last 20 plus years have concluded that the proximate cause of Snake River Chinook steelhead declines is the hydro system. And to illustrate, one of the metrics we talked about earlier is the smoke to adult return rate. And basically that means for every 100 smolts that migrates to the estuarian ocean, what percentage of them comes back as adults? In order to replace the population, you need at least a 2% SAR. Well, into the mid-1960s, with four dams in place, we have measured SARs, that's the acronym for smolt to adult return rate, of from 3.5 to 6.5%. So for every 100 smolts that went out, three to six came back, more than replacing that population. After the additional Snake River dams were added, those SARs have been averaging less than 1%. When SARs are less than 2%, the population can't maintain itself. When they're substantially less than 1%, then the population is basically on a trajectory to extinction. And so in the 60s, when these dams are just coming online, some of them, and they're still, because they, they were built one at a time, um, you were still seeing a sustainable return rate of the salmon back to the mountains. Yes. And so 2% is the level that holds the population steady. Lower than 2% is, is leaning towards extinction. Above 2% is better because it lets it doesn't just sustain the numbers, it lets the population grow some. Correct. The published literature shows that into the mid-60s with four dams in place, SARs are 3.5 to 6.5. Since 1975, when the eighth dam was added, it's often been less than 1%. And from 2018 it averaged 0.7. It's a little bit higher than that now, but it's still less than 1%. Any SAR basically less than 2% is not replacing the population. Before our last segment with Vice Chairman Shannon Wheeler, there is a report out there that you can review that provides details about the situation of looming extinction of the Chinook salmon. It was published in early June of 2022 by United States Senator Patty Murray of Washington State and Governor Jay Inslee, also of Washington State. This report is there for you, the citizen of this country. This report is asking for your input, and that input must be received by July 11 of this summer. From there, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee will review the commentary, engage in some stakeholder consultations, and consider if the four lower dams on the Snake River will be breached or if the dams will remain. You can find that report and links to your opportunity to comment in today's episode notes. You can also find them by searching online for the Murray Inslee Report. To cycle out of this episode, here again is Shannon Wheeler, Vice Chairman of the Nez Perce Tribe. For everything that that salmon did uh, since uh, its birth, surviving uh, you know, the migration out, uh, predation, uh, now, uh, um, warm waters, slack water, uh, turbines, uh, gas bubbles, uh, um, then get to the ocean and then have to fight and fend, you know, the things that they're facing out there now. And then they return, uh, not as many as, as should be returning now, not even close, but the journey that they have, they have made and, uh, it's just, it's phenomenal that, you know, even through the uh, gauntlet that they faced in today's uh, world, that uh, still they make it back. Not in the numbers that we would like to see, but th those few that do make it back, we're grateful and thankful that they've returned every year. And we have ceremony for that 
And uh, that's how we honor uh, the salmon, our Nitzolk, in our way. And understanding that uh, that relationship and that obligation once again, that they had given themselves to us. And when they gave themselves to us, they would lose their voice, uh, their ability to speak. And, and we were told that we were to speak for them. And that was the, that's our obligation to speak for the salmon because they lost their voice. And it was up to us to speak for them. A red-sized thank you goes out to today's guest, Dr. Helen Neville, Vice Chairman Shannon Wheeler, and fish biologist Russ Thoreau. An additional thank you goes out to Jaslyn Tuller and Everett Strazawalen at Idaho Adventures in Salmon, Idaho for their support with this episode. This is episode one of two. The next episode is ready for you right now in your podcast player and in today's episode notes. You can find lots of information online related to this topic of the Lower Snake River Chinook Salmon. And in today's episode notes are links to material covering this topic, including the Murray Inslee Report, with public comment options. That comment deadline is July 11. Today's advertising sponsor is Nissan and the Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find a dealer locator link in today's notes. All of our music is created and performed by Gene Reiniger. We are pleased to have a new social media expert creating our river content, Samantha Sice. Welcome to The River Radius. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. I'm not very good at sound bites. And are we hearing cows? <laughs> well, I think they're leather. I think it's cowhide. And uh, they're not my favorite shoes. All right, you are. So it's not video, right? That's true. Okay, okay. As, right. as, as we say in radio, I have a good face for radio. Yeah, me too. Yeah. That's, a, that's what my brother told me. He goes, you got a great face for radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>